Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Unleash the Fastest Hour on the Internet. You might even say the season goes by fast. It's hard to believe this is actually our second last episode of our third season. Boy, that uh, sure goes fast. I'm, of course, your CEO, uh, Jeff Tetz, and the host of today's episode, where uh, we believe poor execution is one of the biggest reasons businesses underachieve. But what if you could turn execution into a strength, into a competitive advantage? Well, we actually partner with your management team to help you solve some of those execution challenges and unlock the hidden potential that exists in your business. And today's episode is a really timely one for a number of reasons. Working from home is not all it's cracked up to be. And did you know, as leaders, you might be causing your employees to experience stress and burnout without even realizing it? Dr. Tracy Dumas will be joining us in just a couple of minutes to share her research and strategies to help you create healthy boundaries between your work and personal life so you can thrive in both. And then also how we can help our colleagues do the same. And I want to thank some of our partners uh, that make Unleashed possible. And one of them is the hardworking team at the Edmonton Community Foundation. They're connecting donors to Edmonton area charities to help create strong communities through the power of endowment. One really touching example that they told me recently was a story of Shirley Bauer. And she taught chemistry at Paul Kane High School in St. Albert for 26 years. She unfortunately passed away from lymphoma in 2015. And after that, her friends and family were trying to come up with a way to honor her legacy. So they actually created the Shirley Brower Award for Women in Science through the Edmonton Community Foundation. So now in perpetuity, young women graduating from Paul Kane High School receive financial support to help fulfill their post-secondary dreams. You can set up an award on recognition exactly like that for somebody that you care about by contacting the ecfoundation.org. And also our friends at Project Forest, and they're connecting corporations with environmental goals by reforesting the Canadian landscape. And they're running a pretty cool contest and they're gonna give away a $250 gift card in a couple of weeks that you can use for landscaping trees. And $250 goes a long way. Very easy to enter. And we're going to post a link where you can actually share your tree story with them. And they're going to pick the best tree story in uh, just two weeks and draw for that gift card. So uh, click on the link. You'll see it in the chat and you can enter in your tree stories for a chance to win that awesome gift card. And today's episode sponsor, Profound Talent. Now, Profound Talent elevates your business through your greatest asset, your people. Through executive and professional level recruitment and leadership development, Profound Talent is your partner in growth. And you can contact Terry and her great team for a conversation at profoundtalent.com. And we're also giving away a shop local gift card today. And so at the end of the episode, when you check out the bonus content section and leave us some feedback on the episode, you're automatically entered into the draw. And you can win a $50 gift card to spend with any local vendor of your choice, no matter where you're tuning in from. So that's exciting. Now on with today's episode. Now, Dr. Tracy Dumas is an associate professor of management and human resources at the Ohio State University's Fisher College of Business, where she teaches MBA courses on negotiations and managing teams. She earned her PhD in management and organizations from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. And she's taught and conducted research in the area of organizational behavior for over 15 years. Dumas's research examines how employees, non-work roles and identities shape their work experiences. Her research is published in leading academic journals and she's also written articles for Harvard Business Review. Additionally, several media outlets have profiled her work, including Forbes, the Economist, Fast Company, the Bloomberg Business BNA Workforce Report, Harvard Business School Working Knowledge, and the HBR Women at Work podcast. So great, great content and materials. Uh, prior to joining Fisher, Dumas was a visiting assistant professor at Emory University's Goizueta Business School and an assistant professor of organizational sciences at George Washington University. Prior to entering academia, Dumas managed client projects for a Chicago-based consulting and research firm specializing in workforce issues. So, Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here today. And I said at the start that this is a very timely episode because our work lives and our personal lives have literally been turned upside down. 
uh, and co-mingled, I think, in ways that many of us have likely not experienced uh, in, in our lifetimes. And the work that you're doing is, uh, is, I think, is very groundbreaking in how we make sense of that and, and how we sort of create workplaces uh, that are going to help our employees thrive. So I'm, I'm really been looking forward to this, uh, to this conversation. And I, I, I have to ask you, too, how much of a, uh, of a basketball fan are you? <laughs> I'm not as much of a basketball fan as I probably should be, given you know my history being from the city of Chicago, and also uh, given the fact that I'm at a school with a tremendous, uh, you know, a tremendous sports tradition. Uh, but I, I've I've kept up a little bit with what's going on these days with with March Madness, uh, and of course, being a Chicago native, there was a lot of excitement uh, about Illinois and Loyola. So a little bit, but yeah, but not as much as a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, well, and I was I was disappointed to see because oh, I think Ohio State uh, was bounced out of the tournament on oh, Monday, yeah. right? Early. So, I know, so that that was unfortunate for sure. Yes, well, Tracy, to start things off. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about the areas of research that have got you most curious right now? Okay, so the, the big picture of my research is that I'm very interested in people's roles and lives that originate outside of the workplace and how they affect people's experiences when they're at work. So that could mean that you're a parent. You know, that's a role, of course, that originates outside of the workplace. Or it could be that you are an amateur musician and you play in a band on the weekends, but that's central to who you are, that's central to how you see yourself, it's meaningful to you. It could be your religious affiliation, your, your faith-based practices, uh, or your just fundamental beliefs and values. And so I'm very interested in how those affect people's experiences at work. And then you said right now, you know, right now, we have a lot of people who are experiencing a disrupted boundary between their work lives and their home lives. And for years, I have been studying the nature of the boundary between people's work and non-work lives, uh, whether it's more permeable or whether it's more impermeable, and there's not a lot of overlap between the two. And of course, given everything that's taking place currently with COVID-19 and so many many workers now actually working from home, it, it, it really highlights the research that I've been doing for quite some time, yet at the same time, looking at how people are experiencing and managing the current disruption is also very, very interesting to me. And, and the current project that I literally have my hands in right now uh, focuses on women in STEM and their challenges. Uh, and it's actually, initially it, we were commissioned, uh, Dr. Ellen Kosick, who's at Purdue University and Tammy Allen, we were working on a report commissioned by the National Academies of Sciences because there's general understanding that the COVID-19 pandemic has been having a disproportionate impact on women. And so we were working on a project and, and still are working on a project analyzing that data, looking at how this is affecting women disproportionately and what steps can be taken perhaps to address those challenges. So that's kind of what's going on for me right now. Yeah, and, and as a researcher, um, the, the struggle and the challenges that we're all facing in different ways, notwithstanding, this must be a very interesting time for you to be immersed in the work that you do. Yes, very much so. Uh, very much so. I've, I've spoken to a lot of people about, you know, this, this adjustment. And, and it's interesting because on the one hand, much of what we're seeing is consistent with research that has taken place for a long time. Uh, so, there's not a, a lot that's incredibly new with the exception of the fact that people's standard practices that they used to manage the boundary between work and home or even the nature of the boundary between work and home changed overnight without any opportunity to really plan or adjust. Organizations didn't have a lot of time to plan and set up structures. People didn't have a lot of time to plan and set up structures. So the fundamental principles that relate to the boundary between work and home are not necessarily different. What's different right now 
is that the structures that were previously in place that supported the way people managed them have, have disappeared for many. Now, fortunately, some of them are coming back. So, you know, a huge part of my research is work family and, and working families, working parents. And so, for example, when I say structures have been disrupted, you know, kids, for many people, their kids were no, no longer going to school or they no longer had access to daycare that they were accustomed to. So that was a, an essential tool for many people in managing their work and home responsibilities. And that's now totally been disrupted. So currently even in the work that I'm looking at, we're focusing on how people manage the disruption, how people are responding to and dealing with the disruption to their usual practices, the standard practices for managing their those two roles and the boundary between them. Tracy, why should a typical business leader be paying attention to the research that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So I think first of all, uh, being aware of how they can leverage employees, non-work roles and activities, rather than viewing them as an obstacle or, or a challenge. And, and the reason that's important and helpful is that if, if we go into, and if, if we go into managing people with this assumption that their non-work roles and their work roles are necessarily going to compete with each other and that we somehow just have to minimize people's involvement or, or you know, communicate to them that the work in the organization has to come first, then that sets up a, a climate of expecting antagonism between these two roles. And we lose sight on the fact that there's a tremendous amount of benefit that you can actually get when you work with your employees communicate to them that we value you as a whole person, all of who you are, your roles outside of the workplace, and, and there's tremendous benefit that can come from that in many forms. So one, it could simply be that people feel more like they belong and they feel more welcome. So they're more committed and loyal to the organization because they feel as if they don't have to compromise who they are, right? And so that leads to all of the kinds of things that managers do care about, right? They're, it leads to improved, uh, improved performance, motivation, effort, satisfaction, commitment, attendance, right? So many of the things that managers do care about are affected by your employees' understanding of your stance on their non-work roles. And so then again, when we look at research, my research as well as the research of a number of other scholars on the, the enrichment perspective. So for example, I have one study where we actually had people supervisors rate their leadership behaviors. So things like role modeling and encouraging others in the organization and, and, and uh, articulating a clear vision, right? So things that we think of as, as essential to people being good leaders. So we had supervisors who were rating their employees on these attributes. And then we asked the employees separately about their family roles, their family lives, and their identification with their family roles. So how central it was to who they are, how much effort and energy they put into it. And we also asked them, were they seeing the opportunity to transfer skills and resources from their non-work roles to their role in the workplace. And so what we found is that when employees were more highly identified with their work role, and when they reported that they were experiencing things in their non-work role that they saw as applicable, those were actually associated with higher ratings from their supervisors on these really important leadership behaviors. And so that was a great example of how the responsibilities and the commitments outside of the work role that we often see as competing with work have a benefit. And in fact, people were learning. So people were learning, okay, by resolving 
the fight that my kids are having. I'm actually learning great leadership skills in resolving a disagreement or conflicts in the workplace. I'm learning how to see my employees as individuals and speaking to their unique strengths in the same way that I see my children as individuals and you know help them develop their own unique strengths. And again, this was not just the employees' perceptions, but we were seeing a significant positive relationship between those experiences and how their supervisors were rating them on a completely separate survey. So paying attention to this research helps people shift their mindset in terms of let's leverage people's involvement in their non-work roles rather than seeing it as something that's necessarily problematic. And then we can manage differently and the employees feel differently about the organization as well. Tracy, that's a great example. Uh, and I, I think I've often felt there's no better training that on giving and receiving feedback than the relationships we have with our significant others. Mm -hmm. And uh, those usually don't go so well, but they can <laughs> often provide uh, learning opportunities. So when I hear you talk about how we can take our non-work roles and apply that to be better in our work roles, so that to me seems like blurring the boundaries between home or personal and work. Uh, what, what are some ways that a, as a manager or supervisor, you can intentionally create that kind of transferable learning opportunity? Because I think I've always thought that that's just dependent upon the individual employee to recognize on their own that they're learning always and how they apply that to, to their work lives is completely upon themselves. And it doesn't sound like that's the case. So how can managers actually create that environment more intentionally? Okay, so I think it is, it is about one setting the stage for people to manage the boundaries in the way that works for them, right? Because on the one hand, encouraging a blurred boundary can be helpful, right? But what we know from research is that there are people, and, and let me back up actually to, to a premise, to the premise of your question. So one premise of your question is that the learning isn't necessarily gonna transfer unless there is an invitation to blur the boundary. Right. So, but that's not necessarily the case, right? So the learning can take place. And, and what we saw was that really the learning was driven by the identification with an engagement in that non-work role. Right. And but but in terms of the way the employee actually manages their own boundary, they might have a very rigid boundary because we know that there is tremendous variance in people as to how much they want that boundary to be blurred. So uh, in the research, there are people who are identified as integrators. So those who prefer a more permeable boundary. And there are segmenters who prefer a more rigid boundary and they don't like to blend work and home. So this may not be, this may not be contingent upon whether you're an integrator or segmenter because you may not feel 100% comfortable discussing everything that you do outside of work in the workplace. And, and you know, you've read some of my work, so you know that there are many reasons that may be the case. At the same time, the skill transfer can still happen if there is high involvement and high identification and engagement in the work outside of, out in what you do outside of work. So really it's more of a in terms of what the company can do, what the organization can do, it's more of a climate of inclusion and that we welcome you and that we welcome all of who you are. And we recognize that the work organization doesn't have to be your end all be all, right? For you to be incredibly valuable here. So that sets the stage then for people to engage outside of work in a way that generates resources and generating those resources then allowing them to come back into the workplace. And in fact, what we also know is that some degree of a boundary can be helpful, for example, for something like recovery. So there's a, a, a tradition of research in IO psychology on the fact that when you are exerting effort at work, when you're you know, thinking, concentrating, focusing on your work, that it's beneficial for you to completely step away from that, detach yourself from that role in those activities, do something totally different, 
And then when you come back to the work task, you are now refreshed you are invigorated, you have more resources now to deploy in the workplace. And that type of detachment, stepping away, doing something totally different, really hinges on some clarity in the boundary between the two, right? Without that clear boundary, you don't get the detachment that allows you to fully recover. So I'm not saying that you have to blur the two in order to get the, the benefits and people vary. And, and some of the benefit of encouraging blurring is gonna be contingent on the individual's personal style and whether that works with them. Yeah. But the takeaway is encouraging, acknowledging, welcoming, and potentially even facilitating engagement in other activities that then provides a number of resources that can be deployed in the workplace. Tracy, you used a couple terms that are new to me. So okay. the, the segmenter and the integrator, if I heard that correctly. That's right. All right. Now, how do you spot who the segmenters and the integrator and the integrators are? How do you figure that out? Okay. Well, so step one is I think the individual has to identify that themselves. <laughs> but a, a, a telltale sign of an integrator is that they probably disclose a lot to you about what's happening outside of the workplace. That's a telltale sign of someone who is more comfortable having this blurred boundary between work and home. Um, maybe an, a, an example of integration is someone who has a lot of personal artifacts in their workspace. So you see their personal pictures, uh, you see their, you know, their, their hobbies or whatever in, in the workplace. Uh, they also may invite their coworkers to their non-work activities. So I, I gave the example earlier of someone who plays in a band in the weekend. So are they inviting their coworkers to come hear them? So these are telltale signs of someone who's more comfortable with integrating. And the absence of those things probably indicates that you're dealing with someone, you know, who's more of a segmenter and, and they have a, a greater preference for keeping things separate. Uh, and again, and there are benefits to both. There are dis challenges with enacting both. But again, you will see people who fall on a range of those. And there's quite a variety in terms of what people prefer in organizations. Tracy, have you found in your research that there can be, uh, uh, even if it's sort of unspoken and subtle, there can be friction between a manager who is one uh, with, a, with an employee who is another? Like I could see an integrator manager who, who has got a segmenter employee, there could be a sense of like of forced vulnerability and forced openness that's just going to erode that relationship. Have you found that in your research? Absolutely. So there is one of my first uh, academic uh, publications, actually, that we started on when I was still in graduate school, looked at the mismatch between what employees prefer and what the organization is encouraging. And uh, the two primary dependent variables we examined were employee satisfaction with their work environment and their commitment to staying with the organization long-term. And so when there was a mismatch, both satisfaction and commitment were lower. And, and it actually is a disproportionately negative effect on people who are segmenters because for segmenters, being in a place where people are constantly encouraging you to integrate is a little bit more intrusive than let's say the opposite. Yeah. You know, someone who's an integrator isn't necessarily paying as much attention to, and, and perhaps segmenters, it's not as in your face exactly what they're doing. You might may yeah. not even thought about it until you reflect, you know, we, we talk about work all the time, but they've actually never mentioned their family or we, you know, so, so you may not necessarily notice it as much if you're paying, unless you're paying attention to it. So the yeah. segmenters is not, so it, it's a little bit asymmetric. Either way, the mismatch can dampen satisfaction and commitment. Uh, and, you know, and other researchers have shown similar, uh, similar effects, similar results. So, so a mismatch can be an issue in the workplace. Yeah, no, this is fascinating. And uh, there's all kinds of things that you're opening up for me here now. And we do have some questions coming in a chat that I'll get okay. to. And 
remind people, if you have questions for Dr. Dumas, please put them in the Q&A section. I'll do my best to get to as many of those as we can. So it's also occurring to me that we might be segmenters and integrators in different parts of our lives. So I, like, I'm even thinking about myself, Tracy. There are certain aspects of my personal life where I think people would say, I'm definitely an integrator. There's other aspects of my personal life where people will probably suggest I'm a segmenter. Do you find that that's common as well? So it, it can absolutely be asymmetric in a given individual. What we tend to see is that, you know, you can think of dimensions on which you integrate or segment across your multiple roles. So for some people, integrating the tasks, right? So in, in terms of my schedule, I am just constantly switching back and forth in terms of the way I manage all of the responsibilities. I'm constantly switching back and forth between uh, doing something for work, making a work call and making a personal phone call, handling a, a you know memo that I've got to write or a problem that I've got to solve in the workplace and you know immediately after that or even potentially depending on if you're a multitasker, also handling something that has to do with family. So you might be someone who blends your tasks all the time, but you don't necessarily integrate in terms of information and disclosure. Um, there's also, I, as I shared in one of my earlier examples, just artifacts. How much are your artifacts from non-work and work blending back and forth? Um, there's the direction that it could go in. So for some people, they have asymmetrically permeable boundaries. So they bring, uh, they take work home, maybe. So maybe they do a lot of you know, they've got their laptop at work, at home, they've got all their, you know, equipment or files, they've got copies of those in the home and they work in the home. So they take work home, but they never do the other way around. Um, and similarly, you could have someone who discloses a lot in the workplace, but they don't actually take work home, right? Yeah. There's also then people, right? So, Another way of integrating is, you know, the line between colleague and friend or the line between coworker and friend. So are you drinking on the weekends with the people that you work with, right? Do you talk to them, right? <laughs> are no. you talking to them outside of the workplace? Do you see them as friends or are they just coworkers? Is there a rigid boundary there? So any given individual may integrate more on one of these dimensions and segment on a different dimension. So Again, people generally have preferences and you will tend to see if there's a strong preference for one or the other, then there's a relatively consistent yeah. boundary management across these different dimensions, but people certainly can, can engage in these in an asymmetric manner. So I can, I can definitely see, knowing the, the, the diversity of the leaders that tune in to Unleashed, uh -huh. we, I, I'm sure we have some managers right now that are saying to themselves, geez, I am really taking the wrong approach with some of my team, but I can also see the managing up relationship. I could, I could see someone tuning in right now saying, I am totally misunderstood by my manager and my supervisor. I wonder if you could speak to both of those, just some simple tips for, for managing our people more effectively. And then how might we maybe uh, manage up if we're in a situation that's less than desirable and there's a blind spot that our supervisor might have? Absolutely. So I would say, first of all, for a manager, focus on deliverables, like start with thinking about the outcome first. Like what, what is the outcome that you need from that employee? What is the performance that you need? What are the metrics that they need to hit? So I would say start with those and then back up from those and say, okay, maybe I have a preference for the way I want this employee to interact with me. Maybe I want them to open up a little bit more than they usually do. Maybe I want to get to know them better, but is that essential for the outcome that I want? And if not, then if you're sensing some resistance or hesitancy on the part of the employee, maybe back up and respect the boundary that they are intending to, you know, to preserve and or uh, if, if maybe they're disclosing more than you actually want them to, <laughs> maybe they're sharing more than, than you want them to, uh, then 
again, I would say, ask yourself, all right, is this having an impact on the outcome that's most essential in this relationship? So focusing on that and then backing up and then, and then having a conversation, there's nothing wrong with having a conversation about, you know, what, what is your working style? How do you work best? How can I help you work best? Because at the end of the day, you know, all of this coming from the perspective of, of the manager and the organization is that we want people to be at their best, right? We want them to be able to be fully engaged and do their best in the workplace. So there's nothing wrong with then if you're observing some tension or observing some, you know, disconnect, then to the extent you want to address it, you know, say, you know, let's talk about what is going to make you most productive, most comfortable, feel as if you belong here, uh, feel as if this is a place that you really want to give your best to, like, how can, how can we focus on that? So I, I would say as a manager, that's the approach. Yeah, Tracy, that's good advice. Uh, one of my colleagues, Sean Fitzgerald, often says, "Don't assume, just ask." And yes. I think sometimes we're trying to we're trying to be mind readers with our team, yeah. and you know we know how well that goes. It, it just doesn't go it doesn't go well at all. Yeah. And we're better off to just have that open conversation. Now, there's something else that occurs to me as well. People might want to share more about their lives. They just haven't got to a point yet where they're comfortable to do that. And so I think it can be complicating, right? Uh, and so I, I, what you said about just having conversations, I think it's that one-on-one -on -one connection that is built over time that is just so helpful to try to figure out if somebody truly does have hard boundaries or are they appearing to have hard boundaries because of the environment or their level of comfort and that's going to change over time. So, so that's, uh, that's really important that you highlighted there, uh, there as well. So what about managing up now? So I'm working with someone that just doesn't understand me. They're trying to treat me in a way that, that is uh, to their style, but not mine. How can we perhaps manage up to influence things that way? Yeah. So the, I would say there are two ways uh, to manage up. So first if you already have a pretty good relationship with this person and you feel as if there's not going to be a great deal of danger or negative repercussion to you starting the conversation, then I would say that employee can start the same conversation that I said that suggested the manager could start. So, you know, going to them with a plan for, you know, here's how, you know, over time, I've recognized how I do my best work. I've recognized what energizes me. I've recognized what allows me to best focus or be more productive. And can I talk with you about making some adjustments to the current arrangements that would allow me to be more productive? And being proactive is always helpful. And going to the manager often with suggested plans or a proposal rather than can you help me and expecting the manager to do all of the work for you? So if you can go to them with a plan and a rationale and an explanation for how this works for me, and also if you can anticipate where there might be problems for the manager in whatever you're proposing. So for example, if, you, if let's say if you wanted to work from home or if you wanted to be able to skip some early morning meetings that they plan that are really a challenge for you, given that you have young kids that you're trying to get off for, for school, right? Then you should anticipate, okay, why might they object to this? Or how might this present a hardship for them? Anticipate that and then go with your proposal with a solution to that problem. So, you know, I recognize that the reason we have the meeting at this time is because of XYZ and that it could be a problem for you to attempt to adjust it because of these reasons. But here are some ways we can address that, right? So being proactive, pointing out that this is not just about, I wanna do this because I wanna do this, as much as this is how I work best this is how I can give you my best. And I recognize there might be some obstacles for you in accommodating me. So here's a plan or here's some ways we can address your obstacles. So, so that's one way. If you have enough of a relationship with them that you're comfortable addressing it. If, yeah. if your relationship with them is one where you have legitimate reasons to be concerned about pushing back or making a request, 
then identify who in the organization might be able to advocate for you. So this might be a conversation with human resources. This might be a conversation with an informal leader in the organization or, or look at the you know, informal relationships. Is there someone that you believe can advocate for you either in your place or can go into a meeting with you, with, with your manager to have this conversation? So, uh, but of course nothing, if. if nothing that is not addressed can be fixed, right? Not everything that is, that is addressed gets the outcome that we exactly want, but in order to get the outcome that we want, it has to be, has to be addressed. And also going back to the first point, anytime you can have data to back it up, that's always gonna be helpful in talking to your manager. So if you can have you know, relevant data on your own performance that you can share with them, that can demonstrate how they're not gonna lose anything by working with you, or if you have data from across the organization. So if you can point to someone else who works in a different way or another sector of the organization where they have accommodations. And so showing that there's precedent for it here in the organization, there are other people who are working this way and it's just fine for them. And so I'm just asking, can that be extended to my position as well or the way I work with you as well? So using data and information is always also gonna be helpful when you're trying to persuade and you're trying to ask someone to, to do something that would work for you. Yeah, good advice, Tracy, and and I think highlights uh, the importance of focusing on the outcomes and the metrics. And there's lots of different ways to achieve those. Uh, it, you know, it, it also reminds me of just how courageous people have to be to speak up for what they want. And yeah. I think in lots of companies, especially at a certain size, people feel trapped. They don't feel like they can have that courageous conversation. They may not feel like they have an ally in the organization to help advocate for them. And so I think it, it really does spotlight the importance for us as leaders to be working very, very hard to create safe environments. But also if, if you're in positions of uh, a senior position in a company to identify the people that you want in leadership positions, how are you selecting them? Because the worst thing in the world is you get so disconnected from the next level down and the next level after that and after that, that you don't even know anymore that you've got people in your company that feel trapped because they're with a manager that doesn't have the tools, yeah. the attitude, or the desire to really focus on creating those, those safe environments. Absolutely. We have a, a, a great question that's come in through the, uh, through the chat, uh, Tracy. And the question is when your employer is only money-driven and feel you should give all to the company, how do you change that mindset in management? How do you get them to care about people and have them realize people have lives outside of work, which is kind of, it's managing up, but I think it's, it's a deeper question than what I asked you. So what's your response to that? Okay, so I have a two-part response to that. So first of all, to the person who raised that question, I had that experience. So in my life before being a professor, I worked for a consulting firm. I, I, I managed client projects for a consulting firm and it was the firm actually was owned by a husband and wife a couple and, and they didn't have children. And so like the company was their baby. And they, in my opinion, and there might be people who disagree with me about this. And, and by the way, they were really nice people. I just think this was a blind spot for them. They really expected all of us to treat the organization as if it was our baby too. And for us to be there working as if you know, we, this was all that we had in life, right? So I've had that experience. It was actually one of the drivers of my research path once I entered graduate school. So if all they care about is money and you know that, and they are just looking at metrics, then the way to persuade them is to speak to that outcome, right? And there are, again, benefits to having employees that are engaged outside of work. And again, there, there's you know, the recovery aspect, there's the enrichment that they can get. So, so bottom line, you can speak to the fact that all of the, the, the more money that you want, the more productivity that you want, the better customer client interface that you want, all of these outcomes can in fact be um, 
heightened or improved, enhanced, that was the word I was looking for, enhanced yeah. by having employees that are full people engaged in their lives outside of work. Now, I want to make sure that people don't think that I'm in some kind of fantasy fairyland, right? Because I recognize that if you are a working parent, for example, and you know, you've got to manage kids and a household, I, I recognize and research also acknowledges that that can be a challenge and managing those responsibilities can be a challenge and that it can be incredibly difficult if you have those responsibilities and you're working for an organization that expects you to work late and work weekends and drop everything at the drop of a dime and travel to see a client, right? And I've, I've experienced you know, all of those expectations from an employer. So I recognize that that is a very real challenge. The way to communicate to the employer, again, is speaking to what matters to them. Look, I know you want me to be on 24 hours, but I'm actually more productive when I get a chance to step away and engage in what is meaningful to me. And again, there's a, a, a large body of academic research that that supports this. Uh, and my, my guess is that you can probably support it by looking somewhere in your organization. Because when people are burned out, so, so for example, if I go back to the company that I worked for and that approach, perhaps in the short term, they got the outcomes that they wanted from people. But there was also really high turnover in the organization, in part because it was such a hard driving, intense environment to work in. So there was incredibly high turnover. So maybe in the short term, yeah, you, you it feels good to you as a manager walking around on Saturdays and Sundays, everybody's still there working. You know, 11 o'clock midnight, people are still in the office working. That's what our company looked like. So as a manager in the short term, you're looking at that and you're like, yeah, you know, bottom line, people are working, we're making the dollars, but there was incredibly high turnover, turnover in that organization. And mm -hmm. any manager, anybody running the numbers can tell you that turnover is expensive, right? Because yeah. you have to replace those employees and you spend a lot of money interviewing and recruiting and onboarding. And then there's the time that's lost. There's opportunity cost to hiring new people who have to get up to speed in the work, especially if you're in a knowledge intensive organization. So there are good arguments that speak to the bottom line, that speak to the money, that speak to what organizations and managers care about. There are arguments that you can make that actually you can benefit as well by yeah. attending to your employees' overall wellness, including their involvement and participation outside of the workplace. Yeah, and, and a lot of this involves, it sounds like, speaking the language of yes. that the ownership will understand inherently one of the things that really bothers me in most of the managing up examples that uh, that we're talking about today and then just in general in, in in other leadership discussions it always involves like the employee being the courageous one it always involves the employee taking that first step and I just think it's so wrong like not only so business owners oftentimes have all the rewards, uh, but uh, but then they also maybe not are not taking those other steps to create the environment. So uh, when we get brought in to work with management teams, as an example, I often say that's one of the most important attributes and assets we'll bring is help the management team address what their blind spots are so that their employees don't have to be the ones taking the brunt of the cultural change, which is just not fair. Yes. So. Tracy, I want to, I'd like to talk a little bit about how the pandemic has been disproportionately harmful to women. If you could touch on some of the key findings right now that, that you've been paying attention to in the last 12, 13 months now. Absolutely. So one of the key findings is that, you know, even before the pandemic, we know that even in some of the best households, even in some of the more happy marriages or partnerships, women in general tend to bear the, the lion's share of managing the, the, the home, right? Managing children, uh, even if they, they are able to offload tasks or they have a partner 
who is, is helpful in, let's say, dropping the kids off to school. What we know is that often still the women are the ones responsible for keeping track of the schedule and you know who has to go to soccer practice and who has a doctor's appointment this afternoon. Uh, and so with the pandemic and many people working from home and then children being at home as well, you have a woman who was disproportionately responsible for that and now she's got to manage it in the workplace. Uh, manage it in the home, that put her work workload over the top. And so many of the women that we um, have data from, and we, in particular, our particular study looked at uh, survey responses from over 700 women, and very common, they were saying how they're working all the time. They're literally working all the time. There is no break. Many reported just feeling overwhelmed. And uh, what we know from broader studies uh, that uh, approximately in, in the US workforce, like four times as many women left the workforce than men uh, after COVID-19, uh, two times as many women as men reported that lack of childcare or, or not being able to, to manage their work role and their parental role was the reason that they were leaving the workforce, right? So just, it was too much too much to handle, kids at home who need help with school. I also have to you know, do work, which for many people, not only did the transition to working at home have, you know, require just in general, that's an adjustment, it's extra work, but then the work itself <laughs> became more demanding. So there was a, a large scale study uh, and it was, uh, it's, it's available on Harvard Business School's working knowledge page where they looked at data, anonymized email messages from over 6 million employees across many different companies. And they had this data before the pandemic hit. And then they had data and that the point that they picked to analyze, I believe was six weeks after the pandemic hit. And so people were going to more meetings. People were working longer days. I believe they said on average, everybody was working about 40 minutes longer. There were also many more messages sent after what would be regular work hours. And again, this is comparing because many people might be saying, well, you know, that was my life before the pandemic. And for many of us, that's true, especially professional white collar workers, you're often working after hours and communicating after hours. But what these researchers were able to do, they were able to compare before and after. So even if you were sending email after hours before the pandemic, you were doing it much more after the pandemic than you were before the pandemic. So yeah. if you then consider workload has increased. And again, part of that is just working remotely. Again, though it has its some benefits, because on as a side note, there were some people who said, hey, this is good for me in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. So we, we don't yeah. want to ignore that. And we don't want to ignore some of the advantages to being able to work remotely. Yeah. But if, if we look again, back to your question about women, if we consider then this large scale data telling us that people who are working tend to be working longer hours, they're communicating more, some of that has to do simply with the fact that it's we've got to coordinate now we we, yeah. we aren't in the workplace i can't stop by your office i'm not running into you in the hallway so now that's more email that's more effort to communicate more effort to do this work yeah and on top of this increased workload from my job i got kids at home yeah who need my help and who even though dad is home too they come to mom <laughs> yeah. Well, Tracy, something occurred to me last night. So I, I sat in on a really interesting uh, uh, workshop and it, the thought the thought sort of occurred to me that the people that are not taking advantage of all this free training that the pandemic has blessed us with are women at home with small children. And so now we have it, it's 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 just never ending. So women are working more, they're more stressed, they're leaving the workforce in, in larger numbers than men, but they're also falling behind on the training gap. And that's a whole other episode in itself to, to try to fix some of those things, Tracy. But I'll tell you what it does remind me of is there's an opportunity 
for leadership right now to recognize that there is an abundance of an incredible women that are looking for work. And you think about how many women have left their jobs, but how many more wish they could leave their jobs because they work in a terrible environment and they cannot wait to feel stable enough to go find a better place to work. So I know that the people that listen to these episodes are the kinds of people that are going to find homes for that brilliance. And I'm excited for that to happen. Um, even just a little bit more than I am sort of angry that some of the conditions that, that women have to experience right now. So uh, that's just such an important uh, uh, point that you make there, Tracy. You've also done some really incredible work into how minorities experience the workplace. And it's not just racial minorities, though. I, the 2018 HBR article that you have that I know we've put a link into the chat, it also talks about something as simple as if you've got different political beliefs, and boy, oh boy, are political beliefs mm-hmm. ever spotlighted in the workplace now. What are some of the implications right now for how we can help people of all kinds of diversity fit into the workplace? Right. So absolutely. That issue... And, and some of the, the studies that we cited, because we cited a couple of studies, a couple of our studies in that paper, were really about being in the minority. And being in the minority doesn't necessarily have to mean you're a particular demographic category. It was, it was primarily, though, though, of course, that article did focus on African-American employees, but we also acknowledge that this is about being a numerical minority. So again, I'm going to, I'm going to, tackle the premise of your question, right? This, this idea of how can minorities fit in as opposed to how can organizations think about being inclusive and making their organizations a place where everyone feels like they are welcome and, and feels like uh, they can fit in. And so part of that is you know, acknowledging the tremendous value to having diverse perspectives, diverse experiences that people bring into the organization and sending a clear message across the organization, communicating that there there is value here to what you bring. So that's part of it. Another part of it, and I think we, we highlighted this in our article, is acknowledging when we are evaluating people in the organization, making sure that we're not being biased based on characteristics and rather that we're focusing again on the clear metrics and the clear outcomes that we have, uh, we have decided already are critical for this organization and that we're evaluating people, whether we're hiring, whether we're promoting, whether we're talking about who gets assigned to certain projects, that we're evaluating people based on these critical metrics and that we're not getting sidetracked into, well, this person's interpersonal style, which could be cultural, right, is affecting them. Or or also one of the highlights of that article was how when people are minorities, they are very concerned with their professional identity. They're very concerned with highlighting some aspect of themselves that may confirm a stereotype or highlighting some aspect of who they are that makes them seem less status or that the the organization may have inadvertently communicated that this is a lower status set of characteristics. And so, so this is about communicating how we value differences in the organization that you have something to bring and that we're also not evaluating people on metrics and outcomes that are not critical, that are not central. If we think about what the individual can do, what they can do is, you know, they can test out safe spaces in the organization. They can also be strategic about disclosing because part of interacting in the organization is building relationships and having people feel comfortable with you. And what we know is that because those in the minority often are, are you know, very diligent about the image that they're projecting, they are very intentional about what they disclose and what they don't disclose, which is read as or interpreted yeah. as disengagement, absolutely or not wanting to be here or not wanting to be a team member. Yeah. So what they can do is they can be aware of that and, and just be strategic about disclosure, going to the events that 
you know, that people hold to communicate that I am engaged and committed and I want to be connected to people here in this organization. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Tracy, I wanted just to interject there. And uh, there was a, there was an example that you share in that article, something as simple as having social events. Yeah. So as, as, as the person on the social committee or the leaders that are trying to get their people together that way, you may have people that, that don't feel comfortable in social environments because they've hid so much of their personal identity. So they show up late and they leave early. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that we think is, wow, that person sure doesn't like working here. or That person's not very social. That person doesn't fit in. So I think after reading that article, the trigger for me is anytime we find ourselves saying that person doesn't fit in, we probably have a lot of biases and blind spots that we better go and investigate before we do the ultimate, which often happens is let's, you know, let, let's free up their future, which, which could be a, a costly mistake for everybody involved. So yeah, yeah. yeah thanks for, um, thanks for sharing that. So Tracy, this has just gone by so fast. Really uh, you're has. so knowledgeable in the areas that you research and there's just so many tips uh, that you've highlighted there. And uh, you've certainly made me more curious to, uh, to dig deeper into the work that you're doing and how we can apply that in our own company and then how we can help some of our clients apply that. So that leads us to our, probably our most popular part of the segment, which is three and 30. So you've kindly uh, put together three recommendations that anybody tuning into the episode can start to do in the next 30 days to apply some of your approaches and research. So over to you, Tracy, to explain what these three are. Sure. So the first is just clarifying uh, if you're a manager and if you're an employee negotiating, what are the essential details? So many people, because they are overwhelmed, they're, they're invoking triage in their work, right? Which is prioritizing what needs to be done, scheduling, what, what can wait a few more weeks, what can be done at a lower level. So clarifying that for your employees can be a great way of helping them manage uh, and helping them offload something that's not essential. Maybe they can offload it to someone else. Establishing and respecting boundaries, things like temporal boundaries or spatial boundaries. Uh, even now in the Zoom world, uh, does everything have to be a video meeting? Uh, because that could invoke a blurred boundary for people because they're sharing more than they want to for someone with children at home. You know, they can get on a conference call, but managing a video call with kids running around is a little bit tougher, right? And, and so often people are trying to establish boundaries so that they can, one, do their work and two, be perceived as professional. So if you're the individual and you need to establish some boundaries, do that. But if you're in the managerial position, respect the boundaries that other people have set. And also people are very concerned often with disclosing their challenges because if I disclose my challenges, I'm gonna be seen as incompetent. This was something that we saw from many of the women. They were drowning. They were really overwhelmed, but they didn't wanna to talk to their colleagues about it because and in this case, these were scientists, right? Because they said we're, we already are dealing with stereotypes of not being competent in this space, in this domain. And so now if I disclose that I need to reschedule something or that I need some support, I'm gonna be seen as, you know, I'm gonna confirm everything negative that they already believe. So as uncomfortable as it is, sometimes disclosing what you need is gonna be critical for you to be able to work the way you need to, because what also happens if you don't disclose, people are making attributions about your work that may be incorrect or attributions about you. So your disclosure can help manage those attributions. So disclose, but again, just like I said earlier in, in response to one of your other, other questions, disclose, but maybe propose a, a solution. Yeah. Help your manager solve it. So those are the three and 30 that I would, would offer. That's great, Tracy. And just such a reminder that as leaders go first, we must go first as much as possible, connect with your employees, talk to your employees, create those safe spaces. And, uh, and those communications will, will become easier both ways. Uh, Tracy, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you for joining us. And for everybody in the audience to stay connected, you can find Tracy on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And if you have questions or comments about the show, you can 
contact us anytime at info at unleashresults.com. We promise we'll get back to you promptly. You can follow us on Twitter as well at Unleash Results. And for all of the episodes, past and present, you can find those on our website at unleashresults.com. And reminding you, we're giving away a shop local gift card. So check out the bonus offer section when you leave the episode today. You will be automatically entered into that draw just for giving us some feedback and checking out some of the valuable offers that we have. And we're going to be giving away 50 bucks for a store of your choice. And uh, Bessie Box, an Alberta startup who delivers grass-fed beef and hormone-free chicken and amazing, delicious salmon right to your doorstep for a 10% discount to all Unleashed uh, uh, viewers. You can check out them on the bonus offer section as well. And we'll get you the code so you can take advantage of uh, that 10% off. And we are thrilled. Our season finale on April 9th, Friday, April 9th. So note the different day. Friday, April 9th, we're joined by one of the world's leading business thinkers from Harvard, Amy Edmondson. And she's, she's one of the foremost experts on psychological safety, which is so closely aligned with creating an environment you can use what Tracy was talking about today. So don't miss Amy Edmondson live in just over two weeks. And we're doing a bonus episode. So don't leave me hanging out to dry here, everybody. On Thursday, April 29th, we're going to kind of turn the tables. I'm going to be interviewed by an Edmonton media celebrity. And we're going to be talking about some of the essential things that businesses should be paying attention to to accelerate out of the turn. And there's lots of things we're going to talk about in that episode. Should be lots of fun and hope to see you there on Thursday, April 29th. You can register, pre-register for that in the bonus offer form. So until then, everybody, thank you for joining us. Great to spend this hour with you every week. Thank you again to Dr. Tracy Dumas for joining us. What a great conversation. Be well, everybody. Bye.